Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host, Mikhail Carter. Today I'm here with Dr. Saida Grundy, and she will discuss her book, Respectable Politics and Paradox in Making the Morehouse Man, published by the University of California Press. Thank you so much for being on, Dr. Grundy. Well, thank you so much for featuring it. I really appreciate you uh, bringing some light to the work. Of course. So um, first, let's start with how you start your book, pretty much. Okay. Um, So you begin your preface by stating the best man I know went to Morehouse and the worst man I know went to Morehouse. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, could you talk a little bit about this and like, what is your personal connection to the institution and what inspired you to write this book? Absolutely. So, you know, this work is highly personal for me. So, I'm a graduate of Spelman College, and for your listeners who might not know, Spelman uh, is an all-women's school across from Morehouse, which is an all-men's school, and these are two historically black colleges, um, and they have a long story tradition um, in relation to each other, be- to each other because of their location, um, and also because they are sort of socially uh, make sort of the same school. We call it Spellhouse, even that's our nickname for how interlinked the schools are. So, as a graduate of Spelman, I was, you know, highly, highly, not just, you know, involved uh, with, you know, Morehouse students were obviously part of my social life and part of my life. I mean, you know, my college network is is more than um, just a network of college students. It's very much, it's in, it's a, it's, it's a, a family within a family, right? There's a, so there's a sort of racial family of, you know, of black people who are, you know, who are in higher ed. There's then black people into historically black colleges and then there's Spellhouse. So we're really, really tied to each other. And, you know, as a student, I was very, very involved in Morehouse, more so than your typical Spellman student. So I wrote for Morehouse's student paper for three years. I was an editor of that paper. I was a senior columnist. Um, And then I was Miss Morehouse College my senior year, which for those of you not familiar with black colleges, we have this tradition of uh, college queens, basically. We we take it kind of seriously where... Um, we, you know, it's, it's sort of like being a homecoming queen, but all year long, right? So it's not like you're queen for one season. It's not like you're queen for a game. It is, you are the queen of that college all year long. You are the ceremonial face of the college. Um, and so that put me, not only did it give me by charter, it gave me a position on Morehouse's student government, but it also meant that I was really entrenched in the institution. Um, I got to be in this in between, between the campus life and their front-facing life. And so my work 
really my interest in studying Morehouse as a site of studying black masculinity started when I was a sophomore. It started uh, with the uh, attack on a student named Gregory Love. Gregory Love was a 19-year-old sophomore who went to the shower room in his dorm and he peered over the shower stall. He says he was looking for his roommate, but there was another young man in that shower named Aaron Price. And Aaron Price became irate. He went back to his dorm room, got a baseball bat, and he came back looking for Gregory Love and he beat him savagely. This was national headlines. It was one of the most violent um, campus attacks in uh, in Georgia history. And it would have been the first time that Georgia's uh, attorney general prosecuted a hate crime, um, except that Gregory Love did not want to discuss his sexuality. I, you know, the reaction to that is, you know, I was 19, 20 year old, 20 years old watching the campus react in real life, you know, time to it. So the reaction to that really troubled me because instead of the college saying, you know, if we, you know, this is, this is something we have to atone for, or this is something that we really have to dig into. How could this happen here? Right. How can the best of black men you know, uh, operate so violently. Their response was, you know, should we segregate gay students from the population, right? Their response was much more, not only conservative, it was just ill-informed. And they often excused homophobia and and homophobic violence as like, well, you know, black men are just homophobic. And I did not accept that. You know, I, I think that's very, it's very lazy. It's almost, it's almost, uh, internalized racism. And the black man in my life outside of Morehouse did not really operate like that. So I knew as, as a sort of budding sociologist, there was something happening institutionally. And so Morehouse became a way for me to understand an institution as a way of talking about black masculinity writ large. And that's really where my work has taken me ever since. Of course. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And so um, could you talk about your title then and the relationship between respectability, gender, but then also sexuality? Sure. So the, you know, the title, you know, you go back and forth with your publishers on titles because one thing is you want, you, you know, academic titles are often sort of long and they're not sort of products, right? They're not sort of attention grabbing things. Um, but titles should be really, I feel like um, it's like a, it's like a menu description on an item. It should tell you what that, you know, dish is. And so, you know, my title is, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, um, uh, making the Morehouse man, excuse me, it's called respectable um, politics, paradox and making the Morehouse man. And what it is, is Morehouse, you know, sociologically, when we study things like sites, like uh, like an institution, like a neighborhood, like a, like a, a family even, we're trying to say, what is it about this small case that tells us something larger sociologically, right? And so Morehouse for me became a place that was riddled with paradoxes, right? It's a place that believes it's making the best of what it also, in terms of you know young black men, of what it also believes is the as America's worst and most downtrodden group. So it thinks it's making elites of what it also feels is the most downtrodden group in America. It you know puts forth this front-facing image of very you know button, buttoned up and suit and tie and you know the firm handshake, but also internally grapples with a number of issues and internally uh, really tries to hide men who don't fit that mold. And so 
Paradox is for me, you know, and I put it in the title because respectability itself, respectability, the idea that people who are socially marginalized believe that there's a way to behave their way out of oppression, right? So respectability is a term that Evelyn Higginbotham um, uh, coined. Evan Higginbotham, Higginbotham is a, a very uh, well-known historian. And she was talking about how black women in the in churches, black women in the 19th century and in, uh, in churches when the question of should black people be citizens, should black, are black people humans, they chose morality campaigns, this idea that they could be respectable in order to prove um, black people's place in America. But respectability is also about the internal policing that our groups do to ourselves, right? With the idea that you know, someone outside the race is watching, someone outside the group is watching. And for me, respectability became a site of really looking at like, why is it that what we value about ourselves is what we think should be seen, you know, outside the race, right? That that our idea of how we, you know, do our sort of internal politics is based on this idea of what's good and bad to see about black people. And so when it came to black men, you know, I don't, you know, your viewers will, will, you know, are well attuned to stereotypes of black men. We're well attuned to national conversations about, you know, what black men are facing, police brutality, mass incarceration, et cetera. But this group of black men is actually very privileged, right? So this is a group of black men who actually are not part of the demographic of hyper vulnerable black men. And what they do with respectability is they say our sort of answer to the problem is that we'll create an image to confront it, right? And the thing about images is they're just skin deep, right? Images, images, you know, when you put up a window front, it means you're hiding a lot that's behind, you know, that storefront, right? And so that became, you know, the real issue of respectability. That respectability uh, was, to me, it was an active process sociologically of creating what should be seen and almost sometimes violently, sometimes systematically, sometimes institutionally suppressing what should not be seen based on, you know, what you feel should be valued about this group of men. For sure. And so could you um, talk about how you are defining reactive respectability and um, how is Morehouse an institution of reactive responsibility? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so again, I told you that term that Evelyn Higginbotham coined about respectability politics, and she was using that term not as any sort of particular uh, criticism of black women's church movement. She was saying this is one of the modes through which they organized politically. They organized politically as they organize morally, right? So reactive respectability to me is when we look at the arc of history, we can look at points in which, and I'm talking specifically about black people, in which the race felt it was in crisis. One of those crises was, you know, uh, emancipation itself. Coming out of emancipation, what do we do, you know, with uh, with recently freed black people who, remember, the 15th Amendment only gave black men the right to vote. So black women were not citizens. We still had extreme violence, right, throughout the U.S. South, right? You know, southern troops withdrew, uh, uh, northern troops withdrew from the south. Reconstruction was over. Black people were not protected. There was this question of, you know, that was a crisis. How do black people sort of uh, prove their place in this country? One of the original reactive respectability campaigns uh, and reactive respectability here, I mean, in which we organize respectability politics as uh, in reaction to perceived crises, 
right? So the crisis then was, you know, what do we do with this race who is, you know, now just out of slavery? And when we look at history, this is, you know, the work of Michelle Mitchell, who's um, a historian. She says, you know, they were organizing around sexuality campaigns. They were saying, okay, well then, you know, black people need to do marriage and family properly. And, you know, as much as we talk about teen uh, pregnancy now, they were talking about teen marriage. Their thing is that what they thought was very, you know, very ratchet was teen marriage, right? Um, And so we see like, abolitionists didn't just say, okay, now that the Emancipation you know, uh, Proclamation is passed, now the 13th Amendment is here, our job is done. It went to, okay, now how do we prove? And remember, a lot of these abolitionists were white. And so there's a, a, there's a, there's a paternalism with how they think about black people, right? That black people are these creatures, almost like, um, it's almost like how PETA feels about animals. You know, they're fighting for, you know, animals, but they don't see animals as humans, Right. So there's a paternalism to it. And what we saw was these really uh, strong reactive respectability campaigns to moralize black people, to make sure that we were proving our citizenship with, you know, family. So what I do is, you know, I took, you know, that idea that we respond to crises in the race, sometimes even perceived crises with instead of structural redress, instead of saying, oh, these are things that we, you know, if for example, if, if black people are experiencing race and class warfare against us, right? The carceral state is why we have police brutality. Police brutality is not a matter of black people not pulling their pants up or turning down their music. But reactive respectability says, oh, there's a way that we should have a behavioral redress to this structural issue, right? So I look at a particular historical po- uh, moment, and it really starts about 1983. 1983 was the uh, highest rate of unemployment on record for the last 50 years. 1983 is the height of deindustrialization in which the black urban working class, you know, there was a time if, you know, you might talk to, you know, your grandparents, et cetera, there's a time when you could afford, you know, six, seven kids on a factory salary in New York City because the idea that we did not have, de- we did not have globalization yet, we did not have deindustrialization yet. And so all that black working class, people who came out of the 60s and 70s and had pensions and had, you know, retirement, had union jobs, what deindustrialization did is it took all those jobs away and it it took them to places where the poorest people in the world were going to compete to forever cheaper labor, right? So uh, 1983, you have a crisis of Reaganomics and Nixonian war on drugs, right? So Nixon's war on drugs and Ronald Reagan's Reaganomics, this idea that you can cut social services programs because if you just make the rich richer, it will trickle down, as Reagan told us, right? I cannot really hate Ronald Reagan enough. I hope your viewers hear that in my voice. Um, We should have a whole podcast about how Ronald, everything wrong goes back to Ronald Reagan. Um, But all that to say, this is an attack on the black working class and the, and, and the black working class gets collapsed into the black poor in about 1983 and that in that period coming out of the 80s. What we also see in 1983 is the arrival of the term crisis of the black male. And it arrives in an August issue, a special issue of Ebony magazine. Remember, this is 1983, right? So attack on the black poor in terms of, you know, economics. And the special issue of Ebony Magazine 
has the cover is a black man in a pinstripe suit with his briefcase and he's emerging out of a yellow taxi cab. Now, you may or may not be old enough to remember that in the 80s, we used to talk a lot about a black man can't get a cab, right? A black man can't get a cab. This was like a big, you know, conversation. Even a black man in a suit can't get a cab in New York City. So this thing, this structural issue that was attacking the black lower half, right? gets articulated on this cover of Ebony as this is a crisis of black male elites. And the special issue from uh, the, the letter from the editor in that special issue goes on to talk about how we don't have enough marriageable black men. You know, uh, 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 black women are outpacing black men in college education and in the workforce. And it becomes a what we need are more college educated black men. That's a reactive respectability campaign. That is, you're taking something that affected Black men and women and disproportionately Black women amongst the Black working class and the Black poor, and you rearticulated it as this is something that is somehow uh, exceptionally affecting Black men, particularly Black male elites. We have a legal scholar, Paul Butler, who calls this black male exceptionalism, the idea that we take social problems that you know could affect a number of black people and we articulate them as either only affecting black men or far disproportionately affecting black men, right? So police brutality affects you know black men and women. In fact, black women are far more likely than white women to get beat, uh, to get assaulted by police, even more so than black men are more likely to, than white men to get assaulted by police. So Reactive respectability becomes a way of, again, the cultural prescription. Black men need to wear a suit. Black men need to, you know, the, you know, our ma- that special it, uh, issue from the editor, you know, the, the letter says, you know, the ma- black men's manhood is under attack, right? There's a cultural attack on black men's manhood. You probably, this is how the podcast talk now, right? This is how it all, it all came from there. And Lerone Bennett, coincidentally enough, is a Morehouse graduate. And so for me, there's this you know, very full circle moment of talking about, again, a massive global economic campaign in which made one half of the world poorer and which made black people in cities the worst off they'd ever been. That got rearticulated as, but you know, you know who, this, who this is really affecting is black men in, in corporate boardrooms. No, it wasn't. But that's reactive respectability, right? The idea that you can, you know, just um, dress up the problem that the, that the answer to the problem or the problem itself is an attack on culture, attack on behavior, and that the answer to the problem is behavior and culture. Thank you so much. So could you talk about um, how, tell us about the origins of um, Morehouse and how this institution sprung up? Sure. So, Morehouse College is founded in 1867 in Augusta, Georgia. And uh, any of my real historians out there will tell you what was happening in the 1860s in Augusta. Augusta is right across the river from, um, uh, is it Sumter, South Carolina? Um, There was a massive riot, a white mob riot. Um, that literally Augusta's on the river and it's the other side. And so I think that's really key to understanding why Morehouse moved from Augusta to Atlanta by the 1870s. So coming out of slavery, African-Americans wasted no 
time. Um, we immediately set out to, uh, we said education, we need to be literate. You know, most most black people under slavery and uh, really under the 19th century, even free black people could not read. It was rare for black people to be literate. And many black people understand that this was, was essential to us getting anything in terms of citizenship, getting anything in terms of land ownership, et cetera. So there's 102 black colleges that are founded in this era of which Morehouse is one. It, it is a, an enslaved black man who travels to, I believe, Washington, where Howard is also founded in 1867. And he says they're doing this thing in, you know, this new place called, you know, called, you know, uh, the Howard that we should do here. And he brings the idea of Morehouse back. Uh, Spelman uh, is founded in 1881, um, and it moves to, uh, uh, it, it, Morehouse moved to Atlanta because the Union Army was still in Atlanta at the time, and there was safety in being around the Union barracks. Morehouse College, the site of Morehouse College is the highest point in the city of Atlanta. So from a military perspective, that's where the Union barracks would have been. Spellman then moves from down the road at, at Friendship Baptist Church because it also feels safety in there is, you know, there's already, you know, we're, we're teaching black people, teaching black people, you know, imagine, you know, you're in Reconstruction South. It is a very dangerous entity to teach black people to read. People were murdered um, violently on a regular basis um, for trying to teach black people to read because reading would give you political, you know, enfranchisement, right? It's like you can read, you, you know, we're talking about a time where black men could vote and they were voting and black men were electing, you know, senators and congressmen and mayors and state legislators. Black, you know, Reconstruction era had the largest, you know, population of black male elected officials, you know, much larger than is now proportionately. So Morehouse is really founded in that sort of fervor of black people coming out of slavery. And one of the things I think is interesting about Morehouse is that it is founded as a seminary. And the idea is that, you know, you know, as we talk about respectability, there were not a number of occupations or vocations available to black college educated men, particularly in the South, because again, it is a white terrorism is replete. It is the order of the day in the South. If you are a black person out of place, you are asking to be to be lynched and worse. Um, and so Morehouse is founded as a seminary because the idea of seminary literacy, the idea of reading, you know, scripture, right? These are things that are, you know, that are, are, are really ingrained in the idea of what creates a, a race of black people who can, you know, come up from slavery. Um, and, and that would be a respectable occupation for a black man at the time that we are going to create clerics, right? We're going to create clergymen. Um, and there was a question at the time, should Spelman and Morehouse merge? And Spellman's founders, who were two northern white women named Sophia, um, uh, Sophia pa- uh, uh, Giles, Harriet E. Giles and Sophia B. Packard, their response to that was no. They said, if we merge, women will get the short end of the stick. And I think that was uh, that some foresight. So Morehouse, um, in its iteration from that 1867 founding, 
it it has been synonymous with the city of Atlanta in terms of there is a um, there's a reciprocal relationship between uh, Morehouse creating you know um, men who are seen as leaders and what Atlanta has meant to um, to black people. So even the rise of you know Atlanta's black middle class. That comes from Maynard Jackson, who is a Morehouse man, whose grandfather, John Wesley Dobbs, who was often called the mayor of Sweet Auburn, he was the unofficial black mayor of Atlanta. He's also a Morehouse man. There's, you know, Du Bois is at Atlanta University, you know, uh, during the 1930s. There is a, the Atlanta University Center schools, which uh, the consortium of schools were seen as a think tank for black politics in Atlanta. They were the people who architected um, black power in Atlanta. And so Morehouse has always been central in that. And you see that, you know, currently Morehouse is the alma mater of Martin Luther King Sr. and Jr., Spike Lee, you know, um, uh, Samuel Jackson, Raphael Warnock. Um, and they just keep, you know, even in my classmates, you know, my classmates are become mayors and Hollywood actors. And they're, you know, they're, there's no, they're, they, they, they continue uh, to put out uh, men who have prominence in Black America. Yeah. For sure. And so can you talk about the uh, Morehouse brand and um, how does the institution portray black masculinity and how do they foster this brand through their curriculum? You know, I asked, you know, I interviewed 32 men in my study and they all uh, graduated Morehouse between 1998 and about 2002. And this was the thing that came up the most. They wanted to talk about the Morehouse brand. And I will say that um, I think all schools have an idea of themselves because, you know, now we have, you know, schools are treated like corporations. So all schools think of themselves as having some sort of brand. Right. But Morehouse does it a little differently. Um, it does it um maybe more like the military do it. Like, like, you know, the Marines have an idea of what a Marine, you know, is there's an embodiment of Marine or, you know, the Navy has an idea of that too. And, uh, you know, but, but in, there was a time, you know, Harvard, when Harvard was all male talked about the Harvard gentleman, right? It is not uncommon for institutions to brand themselves onto their students. And so that the idea of there are a set of behaviors, a set of, of ways of performing gender, ways of performing sexuality. There's a sort of a set of political ideologies that make you into the brand of that institution. The only thing with those other places, you know, you know, Harvard, Yale, et cetera, is that they sort of just, they let go of the culture wars during the Vietnam uh, era when students were really challenging the status quo. They sort of gave up on the culture wars. They're like, you know what, the, the students are gonna wear their hair long, you know, they, we're, Colleges became more liberal, particularly predominantly white colleges in the era, but black colleges really didn't. Um, black colleges had a different um, set of pr- pr- priorities or prerogatives uh, around what they felt they were doing in terms of, of their graduates. And so the Morehouse brand is almost like a, I always liken it to like the, Mar- the Marlboro Man, if you all know anything about Marlboro cigarettes. The Marlboro Man is this mythological creature, right? He's like a, like the Dos Equis guy, right? He's the most you know the most interesting man in the room, and the Marlboro Man is like this epitome of masculinity, right? It's a type of masculinity that he's not even trying; he's just is, right? Um, 
you know, he's, you know, he's, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, uh, never, you know, he can get any woman he wants. Um, you know, he can, you know, he's always a man amongst men, etc. The Morehouse man is very much the same in terms of a set of ideals. So students described in themselves, they said, you know, there's a way that the Morehouse man walks, the way he talks, you know, he's never late. Um, there's careers that are associated with, you know, the Morehouse prototype, right? So business is top of the list, right? Somehow the Morehouse man is a corporate man or, you know, at least maybe law and medicine. Um, but that, but the issue with that is that, you know, students articulated this very well, right? They could tell you sort of what is and what is not a Morehouse man. But then there is this gap between that mythological prototype and themselves. And so what do you do when you're at a school where everything that that school values and says this is what a man is, is something that might be out of reach for you, right? So what do you do when you are a a gender nonconforming student, right? You know, what do you do when you say, I want to express myself differently? What do you say, you know, do when um, when you are working class and you're like, I'm never sort of, you know, I wasn't born with a father who was, you know, powerful in these realms. I'm never going to get, you know, to Goldman Sachs. That's what became the challenge is that the Morehouse man is such a, an archetype, it's such a mythology, like they talked about it all the time, is that it's out of reach, right? It would, you know, it's like, it's like, it's, it's so mythologized that a real person is always falling short of it by comparison, you know? So I think that really became the challenge for, you know, I would like to see uh, uh, Morehouse embrace a far broader idea of what they value about their students, that they don't just value people, you know, who embody sort of this cisgender, you know, straight, upper middle class type of way of doing blackness. They don't just value people who are sort of politically central, et cetera. But because, you know, their students are changing. And so the Morehouse man archetype is not changing as quickly as the students are changing. And so you get this um, this widening gap between if you don't feel that that's something you can embrace something in terms of embodying it, then you don't feel attached to the institution. Oh, for sure. And then, so could you talk about your sources? Um, And so how did you go about conducting your research and what were your methods? So, you know, so, um, you know, I always describe myself as a sister outsider to this work. So, you know, I was a Spelman, you know, graduate and very much in the community of Spellhouse alumni. And we are a very close knit community. Um, You know, I always say, you know, the the really fascinating thing about being, you know, a Spelman Morehouse graduate is there's never going to be a table of any reaches of power in Black America that you are a degree of more separation from, right? That you, you know, I'm sure the Howard people, you know, feel that same way. I'm sure the Hampton people feel that same way, that you realize that they're that the networks we have with each other are the types of networks that white people have, but just kept away from us. Right. So it's like, you know, I, you know, imagine, you know, how mediocre you can be at, at, at Yale. You can literally be George W. Bush and still end up president because the networks that they have and which they hoard those for themselves are so intense. So, so my uh, respondents were people in those networks. And I really sort of put out the call 
we have a method in sociology called snowballing a methodology in which you ask your, we call them respondents and we sometimes call them participants. These are real people who are in your data, who you're talking to, and you ask them to bring in other people to the, the study. And so I had a sense in my mind that every guy from college had at least three buddies from college that he was going to be lifelong friends with. And then, you know, like when I think of like, okay, who's, who's going to be in their wedding? Who are like, you know, who are, when you look at the pictures, guys, like everybody, every man I knew had like at least three guys. And I said, can you just, you know, hit up your three closest friends? And this is very, very easy way of snowballing because very, they had such close ties with each other that very instantly the sample um, just grew to uh, the, the the sample size I needed. So, you know, like I said, my uh, the men I interviewed all finished between about 1988 and 2002. And the reason for that slice demographically is that these are all men. I told you about that 1983 date, right, where the crisis of the black male first becomes part of the public lexicon. These are all men who would have been their entire school ages were under the the crisis of the black male. So if you're born in the late 70s, 1983, you're about five years old. That was very important to me, that these were men for whom they were the first generation of black men for whom the idea was, oh, young black men are the problem, right? We used to talk about attacks on black masculinity from white racism. This was the this was the first cohort of black men who we switched it to saying, oh, no, they're doing something to themselves. They're not somehow, you know, uh, uh, standing up to the expectation. They are somehow um, responsible for their own detriment. We never talked like that before about black men. And I think that cohort is really historically important and sociologically important. So talking to the men, it was really, you know, it was again, like this is my community. These are people who they wanted to help me because they saw me as a Spelman little sister, right? It's not like a typical sociologist coming to a community of which you may or may not be familiar with folks, or you might have to explain to them what you're doing. They were like, we'll do anything to help a Spelman sister. In fact, the only thing I kept having to explain was you are anonymous in this story because they were telling each other like, oh yeah, I talked to her too. I was like, you know, you if you would like to remain anonymous, I'd like to keep you anonymous. But they were very proud to have participated in part because I think they thought I was writing more of like a brochure about Morehouse, right? They thought I was writing something more promotional. Um, But it was really, it was a a sense of like, they wanted to help me and I really became attached to them. You know, these are men who, you know, one of the things we know in sociology is that people writ large, not just men, not just women, tend to think of women researchers as being very caring. They think of women researchers as care workers, right? So it's kind of like, you know, you know that that old meme about like, you know, when straight men date a woman, it's like, are you a therapist? Like, you know, like that's sort of how people approach women therapists. So women uh, researchers. So I was calling men. I was doing a study in which the site I was talking about in terms of Morehouse in a specific historical period no longer existed. So I was, we, uh, anthropologists have done this before, like anthropologist short Sherry Ortner. She studied her high school. She studied her, her graduating class, 1967. Well, you can't go back to 1967. So she too was studying all those alumni in their diaspora across the country. That's what I was doing too. And so as a graduate student, you're like, okay, well, I'm going to have to get them on the phone. Like, I can't fly around the country to find all these men. 
And that meant that you had, so I lost some forms of data, like you lose um, facial expressions, you lose a lot of nonverbal cues. But it also meant that the interviews went way longer because it wasn't interrupting their lives. So, you know, think about it, it's kind of like a confessional, right? You're on the phone with someone and, you know, like I will say, you know, men oftentimes don't have substantive conversations uh, with very many people in their lives. They might have it with their partner. They might have it with a best friend. But getting sort of deep into talking about their emotions and themselves is not, I don't think is that common in there. Not as common as it. I mean, I talk to, you know, my friends all the time, right? You know, you know, every woman I know has a network of, of emotion, uh, emotional work, you know, in her, her life, emotional contacts. And so they were really staying on the phone with me for, you know, far longer than I expected, which means I got, I lost nonverbal data, but I got more verbal data. Um, and it was, you know, it was, I still feel very attached to the men in my study. Two of the men in my study died suddenly. And you have an ethical, you know, one died during COVID-19 and one died in a car accident. And so then you have this ethical question of like, I have four hours of tape of this person, you know, like, like, do, do I send it to their widow? You know, like, you know, like, they beca- you know, you know, these are things I was proud to have. I was proud to come to someone and say, your children can now hear their father's voice, you know, for the rest of their life. Right. And I'm very, very attached to, you know, it just reminded me that as much as the book is a critique of the institution, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit like critiquing the military, but having a lot of respect for the soldiers. That's sort of how I feel, right. That I have uh, a real affection towards my, you know, my Morehouse brothers and my Morehouse siblings, because, you know, not everybody identifies as, as male or as man from Morehouse. But, you know, that is different to me than critiquing the institution. In fact, my love for them is why I critique the institution. You know, James Baldwin used to say, you know, I love America and that is why I'm critical of it. You can only really critique something in which you are invested in which you love. Um, and that's how I really felt. So, um, you know, I hope they, I think, you know, many of us are still in touch. Uh, you know, I, I still contact them. I, I, there was a, a part of their life that they gave me and I'm very, very appreciative for that. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and then I guess, I think this is a question you might get a lot. Well, yeah, so I'm questioning. So with you being a a graduate of Spelman, why, Morehouse and not Spelman. Um, I do that a lot. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. have you have you considered writing a book about Spelman? This is probably the most common question I get. And I will say this. Um, the way I do sociology, I uh, like to sort of do, a, I study up, right? So I like to study uh, context of power from the groups in power, right? So, you know, you know, uh, I think black studies is a place to study whiteness. I think women's studies and gender studies is a place to study men. I am very fascinated with dominant groups and how fragile it is to sort of remain in those groups, right? So whiteness, as we constructed it historically, we never said legally what whiteness is. We only say what it's not. So you can fail whiteness in a way you cannot fail blackness, right? A one drop, right? A one drop rule is failing whiteness. But we would never say that a mixed race black person isn't black, right? We have a more inclusive category for blackness. 
And for masculinity, it, it's sort of similar, right? There are a million things in a day in which men are policing each other on is that masculine or not, right? Men, you know, you go around teenage boys, like my colleague CJ Pasco studies teenage boys. Boys have a plethora of slang for just all the things they see as failing masculinity, right? Pauls, no homo, you know, like they, you can go on and on about all the ways in which they are constantly checking each other. Failing, you know, femininity in a way is just not being desirable to men. There's no sort of like femininity is not as, as much a contested category um, as masculinity is. And so Spellman, I think, is very, very worthy of study. I mean, there, I mean, you know, Spellman has gone through a radical reformation in which when I was there, to call yourself a feminist put you in the minority. And now Spellman is a highly feminist identified student body. It's, things have changed. But I've always been interested in masculinity. I've always been interested in sites of power in which even membership inside that group is highly contested, right? And so that's why I really, you know, that's why I studied masculinity. I, I uh, came across um, when I was an undergrad, my uh, mentor at Spellman, Mbahati Kuumba, Put, she was a, you know, a really great feminist scholar and she introduced me to the concepts of compulsive you know, uh, heteronormativity and compulsive masculinity. And that, that was the first time I realized that masculinity was something that wasn't an individual trait. It, was, it could be not only a group trait, but an institutional trait. So that when we talk about you know, institutions are gendered regardless of the makeup of the people in them. So for example, the police are a masculinist or law enforcement is a masculinist institution. Why? Because of how it does hierarchy, because of how it uses violence, because it has codes of secrecy. These are things that we would call masculinist in traits, right? Morehouse is a masculinist institution, not simply because it's, you know, comprised by men, you know, mostly, but because of how it operates. It's hierarchical. It, you know, it doesn't feel that there's a sort of a democratic process to making its rules. These are things that, you know, when we when we get into gender theory, we say gender is not just in humans. Gender is a process. And that process can be seen in any number of things. So I was just very fascinated with masculinity as a process in a, in a life process for individuals in a group process in terms of how you know people relate to each other and how an institution processes masculinity. Thank you so much for that. And so this is getting down to some of my last questions. Um, and so I wanted to know your thoughts on the Morehouse Ralph Lauren collection. Oh, this is so... <laughs> One, I cannot afford it. I do not. It is not set for the academic salary. Um, you know, that was, uh, you know, it, it's so, you know, there's so much that goes on on campus that reminds me of like these institutions continue to live far past my research being done. Like institutions are organisms, right? They have their own biography. They have their own trajectories. They change course, you know, like they continue to live and the students really sort of make the era, right? So the students sort of make the feel of that. And so the students are the ones who demand, you know, things from administration. The students are the ones who, you know, uh, I, you know, I tell my, the, when I go, you know, back to visit, as I did recently, I, you know, I told Morehouse students, um, you know, when, 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 I can do my work better when you all are doing activism, because when you're putting stuff on Twitter, that's getting picked up by journalists. That means that I can say, hey, this thing that I'm talking about is, is so much still a thing that students are still organizing around it. Right. And so 
I looked at, you know, the that collection as like, oh, this is an era. This is a reflection of a nostalgia we have for a black college of yore, right? We have perhaps a nostalgia for that early 20th century black college, that sort of that golden era of, you know, when Zora was at Howard and Langston, you know, like we, there's a, you know, these are times when black people were, uh, that's where we sort of the best and brightest of us met each other there. It's not totally unlike that now, but there was a time in which there were so, you know, these colleges were protecting us against a very violent uh, country. Um, in fact, Morehouse had students who were killed in uh, in the Atlanta uh, race riots. White mobs killed two Morehouse students in 1906. And so that collection for me, you know, was done. Uh, I, I believe that the uh, architect behind it, not the designer, but the uh, but the uh, Ralph Lauren um, uh, uh, uh brand of, she was executive or was Dara Douglas, who Dara Douglas is not only, uh, she's a class ahead of me at Spelman, but she's from Louisville, Kentucky. Our fathers are dear friends. Shout out to uh, Dara Douglas. She just lost her father. So I'm I'm thinking of you, Dara. Um, But that was, she wanted to signal to, you know, a, an era of black colleges that, and I love that era. Now there's also, you know, all sorts of complications in there in terms of, okay, so what happens sort of when we sell the feeling of black colleges as a product, right? So this was, you know, again, these are very, very expensive items that are more than most people's, you know, tuition down payment, right? And so then, so when we, when we commodify um, black college experiences, what does that mean? I would, you know, I would appreciate all the think pieces on that therein, but I do understand the intent I feel behind it was to heart back to an era in which there was, um, there was such a dignity and such a purpose about going to black colleges, um, and it doesn't mean they didn't have their problems then. I'm not trying to romanticize them then, but I absolutely, you know, do get the idea of the the collegiateness. You know, uh, I came up in an era where the commodification of black colleges was very important to even people of my era. So when I came up, black colleges were in the hip hop era, and the one of the biggest fashion trends in streetwear was just wearing black college gear. There were entire labels, you know, this uh, this label called Collegiate. There were entire labels in which they just put out hoodies, just black college hoodies. Like, th- I mean, there are pictures of Biggie with a Morehouse sweatshirt on, right? There are like, th- these were, you know, uh, not to bring up Bill Cosby because I, uh, there's, he has a more complicated history to a number of things, including how he manipulated respectability and manipulated uh, black colleges to hide his own predation. But there was a time in which, you know, a different world was just like, it was the thing, right? This was, I can't tell you the number of people who I met who say, I knew I was going to go to an HBCU the moment I saw a different world, right? These things matter in a way, as much as I'm surprised that, you know, TV matters more than say, you know, government policy. Sometimes it does, right? You know, sometimes it does. And so that's what I feel that, that collection was getting back to. It was like, you know, I, I like anything that, says that black colleges have value because when you hear people ask questions like, why do we still need HBCUs? Behind that question is inherent racism because you are inherently 
describing HBCUs as inferior. You would never ask why we need something, why we still need something that's good or superior, right? What you're saying is these are inferior schools. Why do we still need them? And so, you know, things that, you know, hark back to black colleges still uh, graduate four out of five black people with uh, BAs came from black colleges. We disproportionately uh, uh, finished black PhDs, black MDs. We are picking up the slack for America's lack of inclusion in higher ed, right? We are, black colleges have, if it were not for us, there would not be an educated mass of black people. And we did that ourselves. We, the federal government did not, we did that ourselves, right? They, these, you know, and, 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 and we fought against every state governor, every Jim Crow, Dixiecrat, we fought against everybody to keep black colleges open. And so, you know, I feel very passionately about, you know, what we do. Thank you so much. And then tell us, um, so what do you want readers to gain from reading your book? You know, I, I had a colleague who asked me, you know, who are you writing this book for, right? And, you know, she had written, you know, her book, um, Crook County was on Chicago, on Chicago's uh, uh, jail system. And she said, you know, she wrote that for her sons. And I said, I'm writing my book for every queer, you know, gender nonconforming, low income, you know, student at Morehouse who felt like who could pick it up and say, this is like, this is what I was experiencing, who could fill it up and feel vindicated, you know, feel validated, right? Who would pick up that book and say, I told you, this is what it was like. So, you know, my experience when I was in college is it was just euphoric. Like, I just felt like, I felt like, my college was for me what America must be for white people. Like it was a place that was all about me. I'd never experienced anything like that where I was like, oh my God, it was just, it was four years of real, you know, bliss. It was like, this place is all about me. You, you forgot that the outside world even existed. And I'm like, that's how America must feel for white people. But I couldn't sit with the idea that there were black people for whom a black college would be hell. You know, that that still doesn't sit right with me. Like that there are people within us that we treat as others. Like how, how we're the white people of their experience. Like that really doesn't sit well with me. Like we as brutal as America is to us, we turned around and did that to our own. And so this is who I wrote that book for. I want people to come away understanding that you cannot liberate half of black people. Right. You cannot just liberate black men. You cannot liberate 90% of black people and say that queer black people are somehow, you know, you know, they should just, you know, sit, sit, sit aside and somehow separate their queer politics from their black politics and just be satisfied that straight black people are, you know, are liberated. No, I believe in a type of black liberation that's from the bottom up. So the most marginalized black people, the most economically downtrodden, the most, you know, uh, you know, I am, you know. I'm not an Obama black, you know, I I love Obama, but the type of politics they say, oh, what's best for the race is that black elites continue getting to elite spaces. That's not my politics. That wasn't MLK's politics. That wasn't Malcolm's politics. It wasn't Fannie Lou Hamer's politics. And it wasn't Rosa Parks' politics. So I don't know whose politics these are, right? They might be Kamala Harris's politics. They might be Obama's politics, but they're not my politics. I believe in a type of liberation that brings, that is from the bottom up. I don't believe in trickle down racial politics. Making the most privileged happier does not 
restore the condition for the most downtrodden black people. And we are disproportionately downtrodden. And so I really wrote my book for that. I wrote my book so that we could shift our idea that what's best for black people isn't more black billionaires. It's a type of justice for the least of us. You know, that's who I wrote my book for. Thank you so much. It's so powerful. Um, And so look, last question. What are you working on next? Oh, this is a great question. So, you know, out of the book came a couple of ideas and I'll talk about one of them here that I just became kind of just obsessive about. And one was this idea of racialized rape culture. So Morehouse, you know, the argument that I make in the book is that in their attempt to create black men who are air quote solutions to a black male air quote problem, right? Their attempt was, you know, black men have a problem. We'll create the solution. We'll just put them in suits and, you know, and, and, and make them, you know, business executives, but that actually cost them a number of other problems. So the paradox therein in the book is that their solution creates problems internal to the institution. So one of those problems was they have a really rampant sexual violence culture at Morehouse. Like this has been profiled in the New York Times. This has been profiled in BuzzFeed and the Chronicle of Higher Education. I'm not making this up. Like they have a real crisis of gender violence at Morehouse College. And part of what was so interesting about that to me is that when we talk about campus sexual assault, so gender violence that takes place in college campuses, most of the research has never, ever put that in the scope of how race actually constructs these problems, right? And how race constructs our responses to these problems. Now, for us, this might seem obvious. Like Brett Kavanaugh to us is a white guy who got away with things because he is white, right? Brett Kavanaugh is a prototype of what colleges, the deal colleges strike with white men in which colleges protect white men from consequences, right? Think about it. Think about drug use. Think about criminality. Think about, you know, what your, what white men on college campuses commit more uh, crime than white men their age who are not in college because colleges protect them from, they, 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 they immunize them from the consequences of their actions, right? Because something like Title IX, legally, Title IX allows you, Title IX is a federal mandate, it allows colleges to deal with their that thing in-house. They don't have to turn it over to a police department. They don't turn it over to a, a, a attorney uh, a, a attorney general or, 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 or a district attorney. That's how if you went and you hurt someone on the street, that is what would happen. It would go to the DA's office, right? There would be no special immunity that you would get with the district attorney, right? You would be prosecuted therein. But if it happened, but if you did it inside of a college campus and you were a student of that college, all of a sudden you're in a different legal category. And that's fascinating to me. So race is one of the contexts I think is very understudied in how we study campus sexual uh, assault and campus sexual violence, because race to me is that is that's how men, you know, 99% of, of, of rapes on campus are committed by men. So sexual violence is a, is a male problem. Race is how men are socializing on campus. Race is how men understand what they do and do not trivialize about, you know, sexual violence. Race is how they understand how they will or will not be punished, right? So my next project really wants to look at the, what I call racialized rape culture, the idea that we know in sociology that rape cultures, rape cultures by definition are uh, sites in which 
rape not only is more likely to happen, but there's also less likely to be accountability or consequences for the perpetrators, right? That's what a rape culture is. So the Navy has long had a rape culture. Um, um, law enforcement has long had a rape cultures. These are places where rapes are more likely to happen and where men are not held accountable. Morehouse has a rape culture too. And my question about that is how does race actually tell us what that means for them in terms of race? So think about it. You know, think about R. Kelly, think about Bill Cosby. The responses you heard were often people who racialized the response, right? That somehow, well, you know, they're trying to bring a good black man down, you know, or, you know, um, you know, why is it that black men, you know, are getting caught for this, but not Harvey Weinstein? First of all, Harvey Weinstein got 20 years. I don't know this narrative that Harvey Weinstein somehow got away with it and black men don't. But in that, what you hear is not that the problem is that this hurts black women. The problem is that black men aren't getting away with it to them, right? The problem is that black men just aren't white men, right? Like it's an envy about white men. So I, you know, my next work is really about exhausting the racialized ways that we talk about gender violence and race as a way of making our understanding um, of gender violence and vice versa, that gender violence makes meanings of blackness. How many times have, you know, have we been told that black women are somehow uh, betraying the race by bringing their assaults forward, right? We've been told that, you know, black women, you know, um, somehow they're going to ruin a good brother's life, right? We still hear that. These are ideas that say that is that it, the most important thing for our race is to protect black men who are under racist assault, but not to protect black women who are under gender assault, even within our group. And we're under racist assault, right? So that's what I really you know, want to study next. That'll be the next book. Well, look, I definitely look forward to reading your next work and hopefully having you back on the podcast for sure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Of course. Well, thank great. you. No, this has been a great uh, conversation. Thank you so much for sharing, um, talking to the podcast about your book. Absolutely. And, you know, and thank you for reading it. You know, I really, you know, I, you know, wrote it with the next generation of thinkers and scholars in mind. You know, I wanted to make sure that, you know, there are sometimes when we talk about, you know, black politics, we think that, you know, the most important thing is just, you know, how black people look outside the race. But I really wanted to say that there's there's a whole lot of ways we do black things that have nothing to do with the presence of white people. These are gender dynamics that happen within our spaces, class dynamics, sexuality dynamics. And I really wanted black people to be able to take my book and say, exactly, there is there's more than just prioritizing sort of what looks good for us. You know, and that's, you know, I'm really glad you're reading it. And thank you for that. Of course. Thank you. So, again, a wonderful book, Respectable by Saidia Grundy. Please go get it. Read it. Thank you.